Section two of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume seven, November eighteen ninety six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Deborah Wade, Cambridge, United Kingdom. The Witwatersrand and the Revolt of the Outlanders continued by George F. Becker. Gold had been discovered in the Transvaal in the Leidenberg district as early as 1867, and prior to 1881 it had been found at other points as well, but none of these discoveries were of a very sensational character. The marvellous deposits of the Witwatersrand were detected in 1885. The Witwatersrand, as a gold-producing district, has no parallel in history. It is now producing from an area no larger than the District of Columbia at the rate of more than $40 million worth of gold annually, and, as has been mentioned, there are good reasons for believing that the ultimate total production will be approximately $3.5 billion, or about ten times the total value of the product of the Comstock load. As estimated by the Mint Bureau of the United States, the Comstock produced up to January 1, 1896, about $149 million worth of gold. If silver is reckoned at the coining value, or $1.2929 per fine ounce, the total product of the load is estimated at $357,472,626.85. The gold is about 42% of the total value. Last year, the production of this great load fell below a million dollars. Production did not begin until 1887. Of course, Johannesburg, the chief town of the district, grew with the utmost rapidity. A census of the district within three miles of Market Square was taken in July last. It showed... 51,225 whites and 51,849 coloured people. Doubtless the enumerators missed some residents, but probably no large proportion of them. The sudden development of this vast industry naturally produced a profound effect upon the financial circumstances of the Transvaal, although the burghers did not take part in the exploitation of gold. The Boers sold land at enormous valuations, furnished transportation at high rates, sold produce at famine prices, and levied most profitable taxes. How greatly they benefited by the mining industry from a pecuniary point of view is illustrated by the fact that the public revenue in 1894 was six times that in 1886. The Boers did not foster the foreign community on the Rand, in spite of its beneficial influence upon their finances. On the contrary, they held aloof and actually threw many obstacles in the way of the progress of the industry. They evidently regarded the immigration as a new and insidious form of British invasion. 
the independence which they had achieved by remarkable efforts and sacrifices was jeopardized by a peaceful inroad and they were in danger of losing their freedom by a process of absorption into a larger community growing in their own midst that they should resist this new form of conquest by every means available to them was inevitable indeed any other course would have belied their entire history the most evident means of retaining control of their own destiny was to render the acquirement of the franchise difficult if not impossible and this perhaps indispensable measure was promptly taken so far as i can learn both the liberal or progressive party and the conservative or dopper party of the republic are in accord as to the policy of practically denying the franchise to foreigners on other points they differ the conservatives who are represented by the present administration do not include among their members a sufficient number of educated and professional men to fill the offices rendered needful by the new order of things they cannot draw largely on the opposition to fill these places and few of the cape boers being british subjects are available for the execution of the anti-english policy according to mr wessels in a lecture delivered in eighteen ninety four the fear of betrayal to england is frankly stated as a sufficient reason for not appointing cape boers to office in the transvaal hence it is to holland that president kruger is almost forced to turn for educated men of dutch speech to carry out the dopper programme the railway too from delagoa bay to johannesburg and other points in the transvaal is in the hands of the netherlands railway company a fact which tends greatly to increase the influence of the dutch in the transvaal it would also seem to be a deliberate plan with the conservative party to offset and minimise english influence as far as possible by that of the netherlands from which the republic has nothing to fear the dutch or as they are called in south africa the hollanders are not popular with the progressive party which could fill many of the offices with its own members neither is it the policy of this party to foster the influence of the netherlands in the republic the liberal party as i gather holds that so long as the control of the country is retained to the burghers by limiting the franchise any undue influence of the english can be obviated with little aid from europe at the last presidential election in eighteen ninety three mr kruger was elected by a majority of only eight hundred and forty three over general jabert the progressive candidate and now vice-president in a total vote of fourteen thousand nine hundred and forty four the mining community detests the hollanders for it is through them that nearly all the obstructive policy of the government is carried out it is charged that the hollander officials are very corrupt and that some of them are so is certain it is not however to be supposed that all of these members of an honourable nation are bad and that many of them are able is beyond question mr wessels says that among the hollanders you will find worthy descendants of a race that can boast of egmont and horen of hugo de Groot, and olden barneveld dr Leeds has shown himself a statesman of a very high order 
among the assistants he has chosen there must be many intelligent enough to appreciate the expedience of honesty that bribery exists however and that mining companies bribe on a large scale is certain bribes are said to be indispensable it may be suspected that a large part of the hollanders are in africa to make their fortunes with the intention of returning to europe when this end is accomplished if so they are most undesirable officials or even burghers no man of ordinary virtue who does not identify himself with the country in which he lives to whom that country is not home will use official power or the franchise consistently for the best interests of a community from which he longs to be gone the outlanders of the rand were and are extremely discontented under the dopper policy of exclusion obstruction and repression they considered themselves superior to the burghers and a benefit to the country and they were indignant at the favour shown to the hollanders they desired to manage local affairs in their own way and above all to be unobstructed in the accumulation of wealth and in the development of the mining industry the way to attain these desires which most naturally suggested itself to the anglo-saxon mind was to obtain the franchise on terms similar to those exacted in english colonies and in the united states it is not clear that any large portion of the english and american residents were attached to the transvaal in the sense of regarding it as a permanent home most of them meant or hoped to return to europe or america and it is probable that even had the full franchise been obtainable after five years residence few anglo-saxons would have abjured allegiance to england or the united states it is probable that a considerable number of africanders would naturalize if the conditions were not too onerous the burghers however dread the influence of the english-minded africander it was for business purposes that they desired a voice in public affairs and few of them realized that to the boers granting the franchise seemed equivalent to self-destruction so far as i can learn the great mistake of the boers was in giving the outlanders grave cause for desiring to control the legislation affecting them and the industry that they built up the outlanders could have been quieted by judicious consideration for their convenience without the franchise and without danger to the independence or the national character of the republic a prosperous community like that of the rand would bear extremely heavy taxation with little murmuring but a prosperous and energetic community is the very last to submit patiently to discomfort favoritism and maladministration beyond its own control the grievances of the outlanders have been very real indeed and the foreigner on the rand has not been allowed to forget for an hour at a time that he was a member of an ill-governed community a few facts will illustrate this condition the town of johannesburg though containing over fifty thousand white inhabitants has no perfected system of lighting no system of drainage and no general water supply there is abundance of water in the neighbourhood but the law of riparian rights being framed for purely agricultural population is such that no water rights can be acquired if a single affected landowner objects
The town has no general municipal government, though there is a board of health. The state has refused until lately to aid education except when conducted in Dutch. Public meetings of more than six persons may be dispersed at the discretion of the police. The charges of the Netherlands Railway Company are entirely uncontrolled by law, and on a portion of its line its tariff reaches the utterly exorbitant rate of six cents per ton per mile on coal. The company makes profits of 100%, and yet it is not taken over by the state, which has the legal right to assume its ownership. No dynamite is made in the Transvaal, yet a monopoly of its sale has been granted to a company which pays the government something over five shillings per case and charges the miners eighty-five shillings, of which about thirty-six shillings is profit. Other concessions of a like character have been threatened, though not carried out as yet. Until August 1896, the government insisted upon allowing grog shops accessible to the blacks to be kept open in the immediate neighbourhood of the mines and mills, with lamentable results. There is no commission or any body of officials charged with the general administration of the district to whom appeals can be addressed or from whom assistance can be obtained. Taxation is so arranged as to fall almost exclusively on the outlanders, and it has not been reduced, although the treasury has a large surplus, and although there are no industries to be protected. Many of the officials with whom the outlanders come in contact are open to bribery, and, it is alleged, will not act except when paid to do so. It is easy to imagine how very seriously business was and is hampered by these abuses. No fair-minded person can avoid sympathising with the exasperation of capitalists or mine managers at the needless difficulties thrown in their way and the unjust exactions laid upon them. Enterprising and determined men could not be expected to submit tamely to such conditions, and it is not wonderful that resentment should have carried them beyond the limits of prudence or moderation. In considering the grievances, however, it will be apparent that they bear as a whole much more heavily on capitalists and businessmen than on employees. White miners, machinists and mining engineers have almost without exception received higher pay and also made more money on the rand during the last few years than ever before or in any other region. The direct personal discomforts to which they have been subjected have not been greater than they would have undergone in the mining camps of the United States or of Australia, all of which are much smaller than this. Thus, it cannot be denied that the direct and tangible grievances are mainly capitalists' grievances, and that the revolt is a capitalist revolt. The employees in joining the movement were influenced by a sense of irritation due to the needless deprivation and discomfort, and the knowledge that the source of their prosperity was endangered by oppressive exactions. It is quite obvious that these causes of complaint could be removed by the exercise of a little of the good judgment with which the executive is abundantly supplied. The problem is vastly less difficult than those with which President Kruger and Dr. Lades have successfully grappled during the past few months. 
this district might be governed by commissioners and a judiciary appointed by the president of the republic almost precisely as the district of columbia is administered the efficiency of such an administration would depend only on securing able and honest men and it is absurd to doubt that the transvaal can secure the services of such the present tyrannical oppression of the rand disgraces a people to whom no sacrifices were too great for the attainment of their own freedom they should be the first to appreciate the hardships under which the outlanders are suffering and to show the value they themselves put on liberty by imposing no unjust restraints upon others the outlanders made repeated efforts by passing resolutions and presenting petitions to obtain the franchise and the redress of grievances these efforts extended over several years but they met with no success during the closing months of eighteen ninety five the agitation for reform was accentuated the discontent of the outlanders was at this stage fermented under the guise of sympathy by residents of other portions of south africa with a view to creating disturbances in the republic for ulterior ends the idea was broached of making an armed demonstration which it was hoped might impress the boers sufficiently to bring about the desired changes this seemed possible because the outlanders are supposed to number about fifty thousand men and the boers only twenty-five thousand adult males this is mr charles leonard's estimate the boers on that basis must count a total population of something like a hundred and twenty-five thousand the outlanders in the republic are very largely bachelors and probably number something like seventy-five thousand men women and children the plan of threatening the government with force of arms was unfortunate from its very inception many of the outlanders felt that while the grievances were sore they were not great enough to justify armed revolt and these men withdrew from the movement the seceders were chiefly those least susceptible to the influence of the purely english element in south africa viz the germans and a few frenchmen the bad feeling and even alienation arising from this defection is not yet allayed the split in the chamber of mines which is now unfavourably affecting business was one of its results while the boers were fully equipped the foreigners were almost unarmed and the importation of arms is under legal restrictions originating in the necessity of limiting or suppressing the sale of guns to the blacks to procure arms in any quantity therefore it was necessary to smuggle them a few thousand were brought in secreted under coke a portion of these arms was forwarded by members of the british south africa company better known as the chartered company an arrangement was also made with dr jameson and it has been alleged at his suggestion that if matters were to go wrong at johannesburg and the boers should attack it the chartered company's administrator should come to the rescue with a body of men who as a matter of fact were chiefly policemen of the company the national union had formed no plot against the independence of the republic their idea being either to frighten the administration into granting redress of grievances or at most to substitute forcibly a more liberal administration for the present one such an administration would treat commerce more generously 
and stimulate trade with Cape Colony. This, in the opinion of the Outlanders, would sufficiently repay Dr. Jameson, if indeed he required reward for coming to the rescue of his countrymen and countrywomen in case of need. The Union issued a manifesto defining its demands on December 26, 1895. On the 30th, news was received that Dr. Jameson had crossed the border, contrary to agreement and in spite of requests on the part of the leaders of the Union to remain beyond the boundary. The same day the Reform Committee was formed expressly because, as the notice to member states, Jameson's crossing the border renders it necessary to take active steps for the defence of Johannesburg and the preservation of order. Before dawn, on the morning of the 31st, the leaders received information that on Jameson's arrival the British flag would be hoisted. This was portentous news for all parties. Without any consent on their own part, the reformers were made partners in an attempt at conquest instead of reformation. For the Americans, the situation was particularly grave. For an American to assist in overthrowing a republic in order to aggrandize a monarchy would be to forfeit all respect from his countrymen. There is not the slightest evidence that any one of the seven Americans on the committee either contemplated such a crime or welcomed the situation thrust upon them. Mr. John Hayes Hammond, the only American among the leaders, took the appropriate step as soon as possible after daylight. He hoisted the Transvaal flag and he both demanded and obtained an oath of allegiance to it from the members of the Reform Committee, some eighty in all. But for this fortunate action, the trial of the Reformers in April would have had more serious consequences. I am not aware that any member, either American or English, demurred to the oath. The Reform Committee was a direct and inevitable consequence of the arming of the Outlanders coupled with Jameson's invasion. The Boers could not be expected to understand on the spur of the moment that Jameson had invaded the country in contravention of a distinct agreement. The Outlanders were therefore, from the Boer point of view, engaged in an attempt to conquer the country. They were public enemies and subject to attack. Knowing this, and not knowing whether the Boers would exercise any forbearance, it seemed needful to the Outlanders to organise themselves for self-defence. In the rank and file of the Reform Committee, there were six Americans. Messrs. T. Maine, Joseph Story Curtis and Victor Clement are well known, both in the United States and in Africa, as mining experts and managers. Mr. Charles Butters is a metallurgist who has had remarkable success in improving chemical treatment of gold ores. Mr. H.J. King is a partner in the mine-owning firm of S. Neumann & Co., London, and Mr. F. R. Lingham is a timber merchant. These men joined the committee very rashly, it is true. They did not know to what extent the Outlander Party had become implicated in treasonable procedures, and nor did they stop to inquire. They assumed that nothing further was involved than organisation for self-defence, and signed their names without adopting any of the precautions which they would have exercised in putting their signatures to any business documents of relatively trifling import. 
of carelessness they certainly cannot be acquitted but i have not been able to ascertain either from outlanders or burghers that there is the slightest shadow of implication in real treason resting on any one of these americans many of the englishmen associated with them were equally guiltless it is now easy for the dullest to see that the americans would have been wiser to take no part in the outlanders revolt in those december days on the other hand it was very difficult to steer an even course over the boiling tide of events avoiding the headland of rashness and the maelstrom of pusillanimity if some of our men went ashore they have taken their mishap like men there has been no attempt to shift the blame and no whining over the issue their conduct at any rate has been such as we expect and have a right to expect of americans everyone knows that the revolt ended in dismal fiasco the transvaal government was evidently prepared for the invasion jameson and his troopers were captured with all their documents and even the key to their cipher dispatches the johannesburgers laid down their arms and most of the reform committee were arrested at their trial in april four of the leaders including mr hammond pleaded guilty on advice of counsel to high treason and the remainder pleaded guilty to lesser magistere excepting mr curtis who was detained by illness in cape town his trial was postponed the leaders were condemned to death on april twenty eighth but the next day their sentence was reduced to fifteen years imprisonment the rank and file of the reform committee were given terms of imprisonment ranging from a few months to a couple of years for some weeks no further mitigation of sentence was announced and during this interval the government took occasion to publish telegrams and maps captured from jameson's party showing how deliberate had been the plot to deprive the republic of its independence such of the mass of the reformers as signed a petition for mercy were then discharged on payment of a fine of two thousand pounds each two of them only both englishmen refused to sign any appeal for clemency and these gentlemen whose attitude seems to most people a mistaken one still remain in jail so far as i am informed early in june the leaders also were released on payment of the heavy fine of twenty five thousand pounds each they were given permission to remain in the transvaal on condition of signing a pledge not to meddle in the affairs of the republic this colonel frank rhodes refused to do and he was promptly escorted to the border mr curtis when sufficiently recovered from a very dangerous illness presented himself in july for trial but refused to plead guilty the government however declined to proceed against him under a plea of not guilty evidently because it was loath to reopen the whole disagreeable question i understand that mr curtis has contributed two thousand pounds the amount his comrades were fined to the charities of the transvaal not caring to take pecuniary advantage of his exceptional position the surrender of dr jameson and his officers to the british authorities by the government of the transvaal and their subsequent trial in london need not be dwelt upon the leader was condemned to fifteen months in prison without special privileges but he was shortly afterwards granted the status of a first-class misdemeanant as an act of clemency so far as i could learn the sentences passed on the raiders were regarded in the transvaal as adequate but not excessive 
the share of Mr. Cecil Rhodes and the, of the Chartered Company and responsibility for the raid is still to be investigated. Quiet once more reigns in the Transvaal. The Outlanders are again pressing for reforms, but there is no thought of revolt. The burghers are now alive to the need of reforms, and as they seem anything but vindictive, I believe they will gradually concede what a sense of justice demands. The reformers, though very able men in their own professions, have been mere puppets in the hands of men whose designs were much larger and more dubious than the correction of the outlanders' grievances. The honest soreness of the foreigners over their wrongs was taken advantage of to excite them to a rebellion not justified by the provocation. The Transvaal government showed little business ability in giving or tolerating even a shadow of excuse for rebellion, but in the active contest which followed it displayed an astuteness for which the ability of its enemies was no match. The Union of South Africa, under British hegemony, for which Mr. Rhodes has laboured so persistently, seems further off than ever. The Transvaal burghers are substantially Dutch. So are the citizens of the Free State. So, too, are four-fifths of the Cape colonists. The bond of sympathy between the Boers throughout South Africa has been drawn much closer during the past few months. The Afrikander League in Cape Colony, which aims at Africa for Afrikanders, i.e. practically for the Boers, is much stronger than it was, and the whole race now sees in the Transvaal, which is arming to the teeth, an intellectual ability to cope with the larger questions of politics, which has not hitherto been available. It seems today as if the position of the South African Republic in this region were very much like that of Prussia in the divided Germany of 41 years ago. The whole country is in a state of tension, and a blundering policy on the part of the paramount power may have unusually serious consequences. Thus, South Africa will probably command a larger measure of interest and attention from the world henceforth than hitherto. End of section two. Recording by Deborah Wade, Cambridge, United Kingdom.